welcome to the May 23rd edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz, an attorney with Floyd, Skern and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The 4th District Court of Appeal has sustained a school district employee's fraud conviction. Here's what happened in the case of People versus Chani Lopez. In November 2009, Chani Lopez was an employee of the San Diego Unified School District, and while driving a district truck, he was sideswiped. He complained to co-workers that he was injured, but he declined any medical treatment. But later, Lopez submitted a workers' comp claim for his pain in the neck, low back, both arising from the accident. York Risk Services opened a file and provided benefits. He denied having previous occupational injuries or illnesses and any pre-existing conditions that complicate or prolong diagnosis or treatment when evaluated by his treating physician. And to an investigator when interviewed for an AOE-COE investigation. He also denied knowing anything about the workers' compensation system and denied he had been through a process of filing a claim before the 2009 injury. But later, York discovered that Lopez had in fact submitted workers' compensation claims when employed by the city of San Diego in 1991 for left shoulder, left arm, and upper back, and in March 1993 for low back and both legs, and also in January 1996 for low back. As a result, a jury convicted Lopez of four felony counts. He was sentenced to three years formal probation, including 180 days in custody on a work furlough program. On appeal, Lopez contended the court erred in instructing the jury, among other issues. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished case rejected his arguments and sustained the conviction. With regard to the jury instructions, Lopez argued that the insurance code requires the people to show that... Defendant Lopez, as opposed to the insurer, knew his misstatements were material. This section says it is unlawful to make a knowingly false or fraudulent material statement or material representation for the purpose of obtaining or denying any compensation. Based upon this language, Lopez claims the jury should have been instructed that Lopez himself had to know that what he said was material and that there was no evidence of that in the record. But the Court of Appeal ruled that the jury was properly instructed. The false or fraudulent statement must be material, viewed from the perspective of an insurer. Lopez also contended that he should only be found guilty of one felony count for making false or fraudulent statements because there was allegedly only one victim, the district, and there was only one claim for workers' comp benefits. The Court of Appeal rejected this argument as well. It ruled that the defendant on four separate occasions made knowingly false statements to four separate individuals in connection with his 2011 comp claim. Under the plain language of the insurance code, each false statement constitutes a separate offense. And now our fraud report. 
Salinas pain physician Stephen Manger was arrested in his Rami Lane office known as Pacific Pain Care on 37 felony charges of fraud and writing illegal prescriptions. Mangar was booked in Monterey County Jail, where he's currently being held on a million dollars bail. The charges include submitting fraudulent health insurance claims and billings, furnishing drugs to an addict, unlawful prescription of medicine to patients who did not have the condition for which it was intended, and enhancements alleging Mangar's conduct resulted in him fraudulently taking in more than a half a million dollars. The charges involve prescriptions Manger wrote for oxycodone, hydrocodone, morphine, diluted, and other highly addictive and dangerous medications. The DA's complaint identifies 25 victims of these alleged crimes. Government records show that Mangar was the third leading prescriber of hydrocodone or Vicodin in the state. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of 44 years and 8 months in prison. The California Medical Board has the power to revoke physicians' licenses and has been notified of Manger's arrest and the charges against him. The Medical Board has been examining Manger for years, and the DA's office and the California Department of Insurance later joined in the investigation. The Medical Board issued its first disciplinary order against him in 2012 when he was placed on probation. In 2013, he was cited for violation of probation, and then an amended complaint followed on January 7 of this year based on complaints by numerous of his patients lodged against him. In February 2014, Manger was arrested on suspicion of driving under the influence of methamphetamine after being stopped by a California Highway Patrol officer. And in February 2015, law enforcement agents served search warrants on his office and his home in Salinas. District Attorney Dean Filippo wrote in a press statement that his complex investigation required review of tens of thousands of pieces of evidence. The review was painstaking and took approximately two years to complete. 39-year-old Christina Hernandez, a former Fresno County worker in the Department of Behavioral Health, pleaded not guilty to an 11-count indictment charging her with health care fraud and embezzlement from a health care benefits program. Hernandez, now a resident of Las Vegas, was a provider relations specialist at the Fresno County Department of Behavioral Health. She was responsible for reviewing and approving claim forms from private mental health care providers who provided services to Medi-Cal beneficiaries. The indictment alleges that Hernandez submitted claim forms for medical services that were never provided and that she subsequently cashed the reimbursement checks for her own benefit. The indictment also alleges that she stole reimbursement checks that the county issued to doctors for actual medical services. In total, it is alleged that Hernandez stole nearly $100,000 from the county. If convicted, she faces a maximum of 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. An Orange County Social Services Agency group counselor was sentenced for defrauding the County of Orange by making fraudulent statements relating to his workers' comp claim. 41-year-old Malule Tafua, who lives in Orange, pleaded guilty 
to two misdemeanor counts of insurance fraud and two misdemeanor counts of making fraudulent statements. Tafua paid over $30,000 in restitution and was sentenced to three years informal probation, ordered to complete 100 hours of community service, and pay up $100 to the Workers' Compensation Fraud Assessment Fund. In 2014, Tafua claimed that he injured his right shoulder and elbow, restraining someone working at the Orangewood Children's Home. He went to his doctor and claimed to be unable to use his right arm, so he was placed on temporary disability. But while on disability, Tafua was seen bench-pressing 315 pounds with his shoulder in a gym. And on the following day, Tafua told his doctors that his pain had not improved and that he had been complying with his treatment. And he did not report that he exercised using weights at the gym. Deputy Orange County District Attorney Pam Liato of the Insurance Fraud Unit is prosecuting this case. A business owner and his bookkeeper were arraigned on charges of $1.5 million tax evasion and an insurance fraud scheme. 63-year-old Ronald Scott D., who lives in Irvine, and 61-year-old Pamela Palmer Quast, who lives in Santa Ana, are each charged with 28 felony counts of failing to file a return with the intent to evade tax, and 28 felony counts of willful failure to pay tax, and 24 counts of willful failure to pay disability insurance deductions, and six felony counts of misrepresenting facts to a workers' compensation insurance company. And they face a sentencing enhancement allegation for committing a theft exceeding $100,000. If convicted, D faces a maximum sentence of 64 years and 8 months in state prison, and Quast faces a maximum sentence of 63 years and 4 months in state prison. They are out of custody on $350,000 bail and are scheduled for a pretrial hearing on August 17. D is accused of operating Venetian Stoneworks, a tile and stone company in Irvine, and Quast is accused of being the bookkeeper for the business. The Orange County District Attorney's Office began investigating this case after receiving a fraudulent activity report from their insurance company. Deputy District Attorney Debbie Jackson of the Insurance Fraud Unit will be prosecuting this case. And in medical news, a new study raises the question, Are injured workers lying about not using illicit drugs? It is critical that claims administrators and treating physicians obtain an accurate history of illegal substance use from any injured worker. This history is important when there is a physical injury for purposes of appropriately prescribing an opioid pain medication. And this history is important when there is a psychiatric injury in order to determine causation and apportionment. The DWC is currently in the process of developing the medical treatment utilization schedule with a new 137-page opioid treatment guideline. One provision in Section 3.3.1.1 mandates that physicians use validated screening tools for predicting the risk of drug misuse before beginning chronic opioid treatment. These mandated screening tools document the claimant's personal history of substance abuse in order to ascertain the risk of abuse of pain medication. 
This new proposed DWC guideline makes obtaining a drug history from a claimant not only quite clear, but also a mandatory requirement. Yet, it is rare in any inventory of claims to see a claimant actually admit to illegal drug use, either to doctors or in a deposition setting. So what are the odds that illicit drug use is as rare as these common California workers' compensation histories suggest? The New York Times reports that all over the country, employers say they are struggling to find workers who can pass a pre-employment drug test. That hurdle partly stems from the growing ubiquity of drug testing at corporations with big human resource departments and in industries like trucking where federal law for safety reasons mandates testing. Data suggest the employer's difficulties reflect an increase in the use of drugs, especially marijuana and also heroin and other opioid drugs. Drug use in the workforce is not a new problem. Calvina Fay, the executive director for the Drug Free America Foundation back in the 1980s said it was pretty bad, but the numbers came down. But she added, the numbers are edging back up and increasingly both employers and industry associations have expressed exacerbation. Data on the scope of the problem is sketchy because figures on job applicants who test positive for drugs miss the many people who simply skip tests they cannot pass. Quest Diagnostics, which has compiled employer testing data since 1988, documented an increase for the second consecutive year in the percentage of American workers who testified positive for illicit drugs to 4.7% in 2014, up from 4.3% in 2013. And 2013 was the first year in a decade to show an increase. Jesse Russo, the owner of Avalanche Roofing and Exteriors in Colorado Springs, Colorado, said it is unheard of to find a roofer or a painter that can pass a drug test. That was even true before Colorado like a few other states, legalized recreational use of marijuana. Mr. Russo claims that as soon as he says the words criminal background check or drug test, job applicants are out the door. The federal government's annual national survey on drug use and health reported in September that one in 10 Americans aged 12 and older reported in 2014 that they had used illegal drugs within the last month. If that data is correct, a random sample of 100 open workers' compensation claims should have 10 cases with an admission of use of illegal drugs within the prior month. Should any inventory of claims show a lower percentage or, worse yet, not a single case of an admission of illegal drug use, the odds are high that several of the claimants are lying then the question becomes, of course, which ones? Walgreens is making the opioid antidote naloxone available without a prescription in all its pharmacies in New Mexico. This is part of a plan to make the drug readily available in 35 states and Washington, D.C. by the end of this year. The drugstore chain has already made naloxone available without a prescription in Alabama, Indiana, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, 
Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. In March, New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez signed a bill into law that expands access to naloxone, allowing it to be available in more than 70 Walgreens pharmacies throughout the state. The law also protects those who administer naloxone from civil liability and criminal prosecution. And California is one of the states that will be served with this program by Walgreens by the end of this year. Naloxone administered by injection or nasal spray can be used in the event of an overdose to reverse the effects of heroin and other opioid drugs. The Obama administration has been funding expanded distribution of naloxone amid a growing epidemic of addiction to opioid drugs in the United States. New Mexico had one of the highest rates of overdose deaths along with West Virginia, New Hampshire, Kentucky, and Ohio. Walgreens also provides a safe method to dispose of unwanted medications. The medication disposal kiosks allow individuals to safely and conveniently dispose of their unwanted, unused, or unexpired prescriptions, including controlled substances and over-the-counter medications, at no costs. And in regulatory news, each year the California Chamber of Commerce releases a list of job killer bills to identify legislation that it claims will decimate economic and job growth in California. The program tracks more than 3,000 legislative proposals every year, sounding the alarm when a bill will hurt employers and the economy. The chamber then tracks the bills identified as job killers through the rest of the legislative session and works to educate legislators about the serious consequences it says these bills will have on the state. The organization released its preliminary list of job killer bills for 2016 with a total of 19 proposed laws they say they will track. Several of the pending bills limit the use of arbitration as a means to limit litigation. The chamber says that AB 2667 would prohibit arbitration of unruh civil rights violations made as a condition of a contract for goods or services. And AB 2879 would prohibit an employer from requiring an individual who is a member of the military to sign a mandatory arbitration agreement as a condition of employment. AB 2748 would eliminate incentives to settle lawsuits and would instead expose businesses to multiple rounds of litigation by creating statutory prohibitions on release clauses in settlements pertaining to environmental disasters. Thus far, there are no workers' compensation bills pending that have been identified by the Cal Chamber as a job killer. Cal Chamber President and CEO Alan Zarenberg said... These job killer bills represent the worst of the worst legislative proposals currently under consideration by lawmakers. The Cal Chamber 2015 job killer list grew to 19 bills during the legislative session last year. By the end of the year, 18 of the 19 proposed laws were defeated. The DWC Acting Administrative Director George Parasato has appointed Ellen Sims Langill to serve as a member of the Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee. The appointment is effective June 1st. 
Van Gill is general counsel of the California Workers' Compensation Institute. She will fill the position previously held by Michael McLean, also of the CWCI. Workers' compensation judges are not subject to review by the California Commission on Judicial Performance, the agency that is responsible for investigating misconduct complaints directed against judges serving on the Supreme Court, Superior, and Appellate Courts. Instead, they are subject to review by the Ethics Advisory Committee. This committee was established in 1995 and is independent of the DWC. The committee reviews all complaints without learning the names of the complainants or the judges and then makes recommendations to the administrative director and the DWC court administrator. The committee meets quarterly and members serve without compensation. According to the committee's 2015 annual public report, it considered a total of 38 of the 44 new complaints it received in 2015, in addition to six complaints pending from 2014. Six complaints filed in 2015 are pending ongoing investigation, and six pending complaints were filed after the EAC final calendar meeting for 2015. The EAC also resolved 10 complaints pending ongoing investigation in 2014. The complaint set forth a wide variety of grievances. A large proportion of the complaints allege legal error not involving judicial misconduct or expressed dissatisfaction with a judge's decision. A judicial ethics complaint form and instructions can be found on the forms page of the DWC website. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkCom Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.